You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Ken Molman. I am representing the Libertarian Party of Kentucky tonight in its final of its candidate series of debates. Uh, the people that are left with us tonight uh, are Miss Joe Jorgensen, Mr. John Mons, and Judge Jim Gray. And uh, I, I, before we get started, I just want to note that uh, I have immense respect for all three. Uh, I've known each of you in different capacities for quite some time. And uh, I'm pretty excited and honored to be able to moderate this tonight. Uh, I was asked to moderate this debate at the very last minute. Uh, Mr. Wiest, for those that don't know, is an attorney who is, uh, had a deadline on filing a brief to sue our gov- authoritarian governor. And so uh, he asked that I step in and, and take the uh, moderation role tonight. So I apologize in advance to anyone who thinks I suck. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to roll with it. Uh, I think this is super important. Um, one quick note for those that are watching. Uh, if you are a delegate to the National Convention and have not turned in your token, I would recommend watching this debate and uh, turning it in tonight. Uh, the, the deadline is tomorrow, uh, but I would not wait until the last minute. Uh, don't let a technical glitch make you lose your voice. So with that said, let me pull up the rules here. And the rules for tonight's debate. The debate will last for a little over two hours. Each candidate will be given time allotted uh, to respond to each question in five minutes to present a closing argument. And... Okay, let's see here. Each candidate has three rebuttal cards or extension cards. They can be used at any time. I'm sure you all know the rules on the extension and rebuttal cards by now. We've been through a number of these debates, um, but basically it lets candidates extend their time if they have more to say or to rebut something directly. Uh, The moderator, which is me tonight, uh, may ask questions to clarify or follow up. Um, Don't over-talk each other. Big shock. Okay, these are all, this is not important to this debate. So those are the rules. Uh, the very beginning here is an introduction. And uh, folks, if I remember right, it was a four-minute introduction. Is that right? Give me a thumbs up if that's correct. Anybody give me a thumbs okay. up? Okay. Good deal. Um, I am not cool enough to have, like, uh, what's-his-name has the, uh, the, the randomizer that he uses in some of his debates. So I'm going to start just in order based on how I have it on my screen, and I'm going to rotate. So uh, the first person on my screen is Dr. Joe Jorgensen. You are on the air. Hey, thank you, Ken. And I appreciate the doctor. Feel free to call me Joe. But yes, I'm Dr. Joe Jorgensen, and I'm running for president because government is too big, too bossy, too nosy, way too intrusive. And the worst part is it tends to hurt those it tries to help. So first, a little bit about my background. I discovered the Libertarian Party in 1979 when I heard Honey Lanham on a local Dallas radio show, and I attended the very next meeting. My first thought was, wow, there are other people who agree with me, so I'm not the only one in this world. And it was so wonderful to meet like-minded people. After moving to Greenville, South Carolina in 1983, I formally joined the LP and became active at the state and local level. I actually organized the Greenville County uh, Greenville County um, Party because there was no party at the time, no meetings or anything like that. And of course, I've done a lot of volunteering 
fair booths, collecting signatures, and so forth. Many of you know that I was the 1996 running mate of the late, great Harry Brown, who was a, an awesome communicator of libertarian ideas. I have a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, as well as a master of business, business administration from SMU. I was invited to join the faculty at Clemson University, where I teach psychology. So in this, um, in this office, this run for president is the opportunity for libertarians to reach and persuade the 40 million people who already lean libertarian who just don't know it yet. Either they haven't heard of the party or they have a misconception about, about our party. We can reach the people who want an alternative to Donald Trump and Joe Biden, or we can just reach people who think that government is too big. Polls have consistently shown that a majority of Americans already believe that government is too big. We need to reach those people and join the movement, which is why membership is so important. I mentioned Terry Brown. Our campaign in 1995 and 1996 doubled the party size. It was the largest increase in the Libertarian Party history that we've had since then, since the beginning and up until now. So I am running on bold proposals that will stop the growth of government and move us on a rapid path to small government. Bold proposals and their benefits that illustrate to non-libertarians how a libertarian government work would work for every American. Our nominee must be deeply principled, a long-time commitment to our party, and a long-time commitment to our ideals. At the same time, we must be able to communicate in everyday language that they will understand how we can help them in their everyday lives. Everyday concerns like healthcare, taxes, jobs, war, cost of living, war on drugs, opioid uh, overdose deaths, and the environment. And above all, we have to show the great benefits that we get peace by bringing our troops home, we're saving lives. We have prosperity and financial security because individuals can spend their own money instead of having government spend it for them. This agenda will attract new libertarians to the party and benefit our 2020 candidate. Please visit joj2020.com, either join my campaign um, or help to nominate me. And together, we'll give millions of Americans a bold and positive libertarian choice for a better America. Thank you, Dr. Jorgensen. Uh, John Moms, you're next, sir. All righty. I'll take my time to kind of give everyone who may have uh, not seen me uh, before a little introduction about my personal background, my work with the LP, and, and my campaign. I'm a native of Detroit, Michigan, and... I stayed there for my first 15 years, family moved to Florida where I finished high school. From Florida, I went to Atlanta, Georgia to college at, uh, to college at Morehouse College, excuse me, and got a degree in banking and finance. Stayed in Atlanta for a couple of more years after school working for Lehman Brothers investment firm. Decided to change careers. I moved back home to Detroit and started working with the regional airline. In Detroit, that's where I met the love of my life, Kathalina. We've been married for 22 years, and we've had uh, four children. Uh, after we wanted, you know, we wanted to leave Detroit and and move south, and that's what we did. So we decided 
uh, to pack up, move to Georgia. And we've been here for the last 20 years where I became a stay-at-home dad and a homeschool parent. Uh, two of my uh, students have already graduated college. One is a college senior and one is still at home. It's been the, the, the most fun and hardest job I've ever had. And my daughter was the youngest delegate at 15 at the last national convention. And she's a delegate this time around. She's second generation LP. Well, I found the LP around 2004. I'd been politically ha uh, homeless. And what got me was the, the platform. That freedom message resonated and I've been active ever since. I've run four races uh, previous to this one and I've gotten over 1.8 million votes. But I don't say that to brag. I, I say it to really maybe inspire somebody to see if they see that I've had success being a libertarian candidate, maybe it'll interest them in running. So, you know, right now I, I just don't run races. I've been active in the LP Georgia XCOM for numerous years. I've started a local affiliate. I'm a party to a lawsuit right now challenging ballot access. So, I mean, the party really means a lot to me. And what I'm doing in running this race, one, my inspiration was my great, great grandparents, Columbus Morning Ferguson, who were from Georgia and they were slaves in Georgia. And knowing where we are politically, my affiliation with the party, they inspired me to join this race. You know, I'd given it some thought, but like most races, uh, you know, it takes a lot. And, and, and you really have to be inspired to want to you know, join the fray and put yourself out there. So they are my inspiration. Another reason I wanted to run was I wanted to make sure in this election cycle, we had a libertarian candidate that could articulate the message clearly to the average voter. And that's so important because they don't need to go away from any election being confused about what a libertarian is. They don't think we need to be Democrat light or Republican light or anything like that. So with my candidacy, I know that's, uh, you know, a fact that they will have a choice. And there's also some other great candidates out there. Um, and also, you know, the Libertarian Party has done so much for me. You know, I, this is almost a service because I'm so thankful for finding a home. And, you know, I owe so much to the party for making my life better that I want to do what I can to help the LP. And I think my candidacy will. Thank you. All right. And then uh, finally, Judge Jim Gray. Thank you. The issue is leadership for the Libertarian Party, for the United States of America. So how do you detect leadership? We need leadership to point our country back in the area of liberty, back to our roots. I've written a musical. It's called Convention, the Birth of America. It's about the Constitutional Convention. And in my research, I found, which I'd known already, there were 55 delegates, the founders. They disagreed. They debated. They might as well have been libertarians. They fought with each other. But the thing they all agreed upon was the most important function of government is protecting our rights and our liberties from the encroachment of government. Number two of import was security. So leadership is not just talk. It's to lead. So how do you know? How do you know if someone has leadership or not? Well, you look at their record. Well, you look at my record. And back in when I was in law school, I led a peace march against 
President Nixon putting our troops into Cambodia, May of 1970, we went from the campus of USC to the steps of City Hall, and I led that sending off 20,000 letters to President Nixon demanding that we withdraw our troops from Cambodia. That was leadership. It was libertarian back then. I didn't realize it. I was appointed to the bench in early 1984. And at that point, I'd been on the bench then for, since 1992 for eight years, and I held a press conference. Judges don't do that. But I stated the obvious to me as a former drug warrior that our nation's drug policy is not working. We must change away from this failed policy of drug prohibition. I put my public life at risk. I acknowledge that some things are more important than job security. And I think that was libertarian leadership. But you don't just talk. You have a plan. Ask me about plans that we have here. We'll discuss it. We have plans to win this election. How? No, I know at the beginning, we're not going to be able to go into the big states and compete with the tens of millions of dollars in California, Texas, New York. I know that. But we're going to go to five selected small independent states. Larry Sharp and I, who's my running mate, will go there, spend our time, our resources, our energies there, and look at people directly. Your vote will make history. If we win your state, 38, 40% of the vote, we will then be able to show the world what libertarianism is. And if we win two or three small states, we will very likely deprive the Trumps and the Bidens of this world of an electoral college majority. It will go into the House of Representatives and then they're restricted by the 12th Amendment to the top three finishers. Judge Jim Gray, the libertarian, will win the presidency. Long shot? Yeah, but it's certainly feasible. But along the way, as soon as we start polling well in Utah or Wyoming or New Hampshire, wherever we choose, then it's going to have coattails. People around the, the country are going to say, wait a minute, what's going on? They're polling there. Who are they? those libertarians? Whoa, let's cover that issue. Let's do that. And so we will bring this along. Look, we will have a way of turning a crutch of welfare into a ladder to, to step out of poverty. We have those plans. Talk to us about them. We have sunset laws to actually protect and, and peel down and then abolish various federal agencies. We have those plans. Look, John Mons is a good principled man, but he has no plans. Joe Jorgensen is a really good principled woman, but she has no plans. I'd like to extend a minute, please. So leadership is also meaning you stand up to the slings and arrows of people criticizing you. And I've done that. I understand it. You know, with jury nullification, I am in favor of jury nullification. I've been a judge for 25 years. There are nuances that I believe in justice, and that's what I've taken. But I understand that knowingly. You take action. 1984, I'd been on the bench for six months, had the first drug court in the country up in operation to address problems. I also started a peer court to address mentoring problems for our high school students. I started an inner court in the profession of law for focus on ethics, camaraderie, and excellence in the practice of law. You know, we will inspire, we will grow the party, we will help down ballot candidates. I was a libertarian, I will be forever. I was your candidate for Senate 2004, 2012 for vice president. Join us, look at graysharp2020.com, we will, if you help us, you, even if you don't, I assure you, we will do you proud. We will inspire people and we'll furnish a program, a campaign that you'd be happy to share with your friends, your neighbors, and your relatives. That's who we are. We'll talk more. Thank you. Yep. All right. Thank you, all of you. Um, 
bit of housekeeping here. I apologize. Uh, I should have right off the bat mentioned that we are broadcasting live on the We Are Libertarians uh, channel. And I want to thank them and Chris Spengel. Uh, Chris is doing the, the heavy lifting behind the scenes so I can just focus on screwing up this job and not screwing up both jobs. So I thank Chris and uh, We Are Libertarians for uh, handling the tech behind the scenes. And uh, with that, uh, the second question that was given to me, and uh, Judd Gray just touched on this, talk to us about your campaign organization and plans. Uh, how will you ramp up for a 50-state presidential run, and how, with what, and what, with what staff size do you intend to staff your campaign? How do you intend to conduct fundraising and have you already started? And how do you intend to use campaign funds effectively to advance your campaign? This is why these have four-minute answers, just so you're wondering. These are very long questions, and I apologize. I got you, Ken. But well, uh, based on – well, real quick, based on the order, uh, this will, this one's going to go to John Mons first. No. Sorry. All right. Well, my campaign strategy is to, one, uh, go to all 50 states, but depending on what the state leadership wants me to do. You know, part of working – with LP Georgia, XCOM for a number of terms, is I know how important ballot access is. And I don't want to run a top-down campaign. You know, I don't want to be a nominee that's telling, you know, the states, you know, what I need from them. My focus is on bottom-up. You work through the state uh, leadership and have them tell me what they need from me. So part of the organization, and, and one thing that I've, I've learned from running four previous uh, LP campaigns is how to do a whole lot with not much. And a lot of my success has been running very efficient campaigns. You know, my so-called staff really is about a handful of folks that are very dedicated and serious. And we've been able to put together a very successful campaign. But when you look at getting the nomination and moving to that next level, that's where you your support comes from is on a state by state level. And I've already been reaching out and know that uh, this strategy will be a lot better as, as far as building a national network. And also that the fundraising is the same. You know, we run through the states, run through our supporters and go back to our previous donors for more. You know, there's a lot of people that I have personally that are just waiting to find out the outcome on Saturday, you know, they donated to the campaign already and said, hey, you get this nomination, you know, I'm ready to go ahead and support you some more. And a lot of these folks aren't libertarians. And I think that's the real X factor when you look at my campaign is I have ability to bring in and draw folks that aren't libertarians that will give us a look. So, you know, this strategy and my willingness, for, first of all, as a stay-at-home dad, I have the time, I have the availability to go any and everywhere to make this a full-time campaign. I will put everything on hold that I have and go out and for the next six months, hit it hard, hit it every day. And that's what I, I'm dedicated to doing. You know, that's my commitment. And I know with the fact that the, if the message is strong, we will gather more and more support as we go. And for me, the ultimate uh, test is making sure that this message of freedom and libertarianism, freedom, 
independence, empowering the individual, making sure that the candidate won't confuse voters. So that's my layout. That's my plan for going to all 50 states. All right, and next is uh, Judge Gray. Well, and thank you again, Ken. Um, we already, we have an amazing team of volunteers already for this nomination process. We have a kitchen cabinet. We have volunteers talking to delegates. We have volunteers everywhere. We are raising money already. We have all things in place in almost 50 states for social media and people on the ground. Once we get the nomination, then yes, we will hire a professional campaign manager. We are going to do this professionally because it calls for that. We will unify the patriot, the country as well as the Libertarian Party. And when we make these surges, you know, when I was your vice presidential candidate, I got lots of local media wherever I went. We're then going to get uh, national media as well. Just yesterday, I was contacted by CBS radio to be on a show not connected to the, to the uh, election, but just for regular various amounts. So we're going to do that. Then we will start changing the culture of our country such that we will make libertarianism accessible all around the country. This will help our down ballot candidates. This will help them enormously. We've helped them in the past, we'll continue to, we will jointly approach the voters. And we'll also help, of course, with regard to ballot access, which is so thoroughly important. By the way, if we win even that one state, that one gold state, talk about help with ballot access, as well as being uh, in future debates. So these are all things that we look to. It will be done professionally. I think that I speak well, I, I teach young lawyers. The best thing you can do in public speaking is show people you believe what you're saying. I don't say anything that I don't believe. Larry Sharp is my running mate. He is there poised as well, poised and ready. Social media, connections, heart. We're going to spend our time to further the libertarian cause for freedom and for equality, as well as just live and let live. Those are our standards. We're geared up to ready to go. Get the nomination and we're off. All right. And uh, finally, uh, Dr. Jorgensen. The first uh, part of your question asked about staff. And let me say, I've got a great staff. As I mentioned in my introduction, I was part of the largest growth in the Libertarian Party history. So the first thing I did was I went back and got a lot of those people who were involved in that. For instance, uh, Steve Dosbach is my campaign chair, and I just can't say enough good things about him. During the 90s, he was both uh, the national chair and executive director. And he was there when we doubled the party size, the largest growth ever, ever. So he's got the experience. I've also got other longtime libertarians, many of them involved in the Harry Brown campaign. So we value growing membership. Yes, votes are important. However, membership is very important for long-term growth and to make sure that we're getting candidates at all levels. Um, one thing we're not going to do is unlike many of the previous candidates, we are not going to hire outside Republican consultants to come in, take our data, and then leave, because that's what's been happening. When Harry Brown and I ran, what we did was we shared the data with the uh, Libertarian Party real time so that they could share the names with other candidates. We've made that commitment. In fact, Joe Houtman, my campaign chair, and I went to a, um, an LNC meeting in Reno, and we 
gave it to them in writing. We are going to give you our data. We are going to share data with you. And we didn't ask for anything in return. Unfortunately, when we have outside consultants come in, sometimes they leave with the data and the Libertarian Party doesn't get the long-term benefit. We have to keep the data. That's ours. We deserve it. We don't want it to walk away with the Republicans. Um, yes, uh, uh there have been complaints in the past about how some of the presidential campaigns have spent too much money, wasted too much money on overhead. My campaign has run so efficiently and on so little money that it's just amazing how far we've come. Steve Dasbach is doing this on a volunteer basis, which is just amazing because it's a full-time job. So what I want to do is I want the money that our campaign gets to go to brochures, to go on my traveling around the country, to get into bringing in new members, not paying for a highly paid staff. Now, fundraising, I've already got agreement from some of the best fundraisers we've had in the history of the party over the last 30 years that they've already said that they will help me with fundraising. Uh, one of them has raised over $10 million for the Libertarian Party. He said he would help out whenever we needed him. I'm going to effectively use these funds to help the down ballot. Uh, you asked about strategy. One thing that we plan to do is to go to mid-sized towns where we get the most uh, bang for our buck. If we go to New York City or Houston, I mean, fine cities. In fact, I used to live um, in Houston, but those are very large towns, large cities who already have a lot going on. And if we came there and visited, we would just be like, you know, a very small section on page 14 of any local newspaper. So we're going to mid-sized cities such as Greenville. And I just want to share, when I ran for U.S. House, Nancy Lord, who was the VP at the time, the VP nominee, she came to my town. We had this venue rented out. It was chock full, people waiting outside. And we were actually body surfed in the crowd. So I will go to any mid-sized city where we can get that kind of attraction and, and basically get the best bang for our buck. Um, as far as who we go after, I want to go after young people and absolutely go after young, uh, uh, low-hanging fruit. I'm not going to go out there and try to twist people's arms. There are many people out there who want to hear our message. Those are the people we're going after. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jorgensen. Uh, next question. Let's see here. I, of course, made it go off screen because I left my computer. Ballot access. Ballot access is determined in a handful of states, about a dozen, by the results for president. Uh, for some states, it's 1%, others 2%, a few 3%, and a few 5%. Do you intend to spend any additional time in these states to assist with these affiliates with driving your numbers up in those states to ensure that you hit the ballot access numbers? And, and if you have one, what is your plan to help hit those numbers? Do you think that you are the best candidate to hit those numbers and why? And this time we are starting with uh, Judge Jim Gray. Well, I've already outlined, Ken, our, our plan. We're going to start in those five small states. We're going to expand. We're going to make no waves there. We're going to make news there. And then this really will expand around the country. But of course, ballot access is critically important. You bring a credible campaign. You bring a campaign that will inspire people and it will take off. 
you show them, oh, I too am a libertarian. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that as well. That's what you do. You present a campaign that will inspire people, one that you'd be proud to share with your neighbors all around the country. Social media will help with that as well. So, of course, the down ballot candidates, ballot access, it's, it's really important stuff for us. But then once it starts to spread, you can't be everywhere at once. There's just Larry Sharp and me. But we will make that effort. We will then start making a news media uh, attention around the country. It, it, you can't guarantee that, uh, but if the New York Times calls, of course, we will we will agree with that. But when you start making progress, people like to win. They like progress. They like to see progress, and progress in those fine small states will spread, and then we will get that story, get that momentum, and uh, certainly assist all around the country. That's just the, the plan, and I'm convinced. I'm really excited about it. I think you should be, too. We're going to be successful. Thank you, Judge Gray. Uh, next is uh, Dr. Jordanson. Ballot access is crucial for our party. We have to have 50 state ballot access in order to show the rest of the world, the rest of the country that, yes, we are a serious political party. If we come short, it doesn't matter if we come one state, two states, three states short. Basically, you're either 50 state ballot access or you're not. And if you're not, then you're relegated with like the Green Party and the Socialist Party and the other has has been. So the only way for us to play in the big game with the Democrats and Republicans is for us to say, yes, we have 50 state ballot access. We're one of the big players and we deserve to be in the debates and we deserve to be out there in the forefront. So absolutely, this is important. And yes, I would go to uh, as many states as I had to who have problems with that. And I would like to remind you that in 1996, we were on the ballot in all 50 states. And uh, it was just a different ballgame than, than when we're not. I'd like to point out that I think my presentation has a broad appeal that I can go out there and explain to different groups of people how we would help them. Also, I think I am a stark contrast to the Trump and Biden that we have now. What we're hearing in the media, and no, libertarians are not saying this, but something that we have to keep in mind is what matters is how the public perceives us. What matters is what's being said about us. And right now, we are hearing the media say there's two rich old white men running. Um, this race is kind of getting boring. And I would absolutely spice up that race. I would create a newsworthy event. And I would absolutely go to any state that needed a certain uh, percentage for ballot access. And that's one reason why, as much as I would like to say that we would go to all 50 states, uh, there are some states that need us more than others. Um, eventually, I'd like to get to all 50 states, but we really need to put the party first. We need to put ballot access first. So absolutely, I plan to hit the numbers. We've done it before. I plan to do it again. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jorgensen. And finally, uh, Mr. Mons. Well, this is an area where we can clearly see a difference in approach. You know, one thing that I've learned from being with the LP and being involved with like I said earlier, LP Georgia XCOM is I understand how important ballot access is. I also understand how important being on the top of the ticket is to down ballot races. So to say that, you know, you're going to use a top down approach. I'm going to decide what cities I'm going into, you know, mid, mid level. Uh, I'm going to decide what states I'm going into. You just don't get it. And that's why my approach, I believe, is the best one. 
work with the state leadership. They know what they need. Do they need to, a fundraiser? Do they need to support a down ballot candidate race? You go to the leadership and work with them, work in regional areas. We ought to be able to hit this, the Southeast United States and coordinate a schedule with the leadership in that region to be able to host multiple meetings within a few days of each other that's going to help them on the state level. And you do that all around the country. You know, that's a more effective strategy. So, you know, trying to be top down actually hurts us because we have to realize right now we only have 36 states that we're going to be in a ballot uh, with right now, still working on some more. But the results of this election, you have to be looking long term also. We're looking at 2024 and how the candidate, you know, can we help the LNC? Do they, can we pull back on them having to spend so much money and time petitioning in some of these states, you know, because we've lost ballot access? We have to look at what I call X factors. What is going to bring people to the party that aren't libertarians? We know we have a base of votes. You know, libertarians, we have quality candidates for sure. So we don't have a problem inspiring libertarians to get out the vote. But what candidate is going to inspire non-libertarians to get out the vote? And I think I'm the largest X factor in this race. You know, my race, my nomination will in, go across the nation. It'll be historic. You know, and, I, and I'm not going to shy away from that. Just to, uh, yesterday, I think it was, the AJC mentioned the Libertarian Party and the fact that we're having an online convention. And the candidate they mentioned, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, was it might have been a little home cooking because I am from Georgia. But still, the, the candidate that they mentioned was John Mons, who they said was something of a libertarian legend. So people have seen my name. They know about me. And I will inspire not only libertarians, but non-libertarians, you know, to look at what I have to say in representing the party. The message is freedom. And that's a clear message that we can win on, you know, across the board. But you have to go out on a state by state level to help these down ballot candidates and not concentrate on what the candidate, the nominee believes is important, but on what each state thinks is important. And that's my strategy. All right. Thank you for that. And if I can just figure out my timer here. Sorry. Reset. There we go. Our next question, um, and this will, let's see here. This is uh, party growth is an important function of a presidential race. Can you speak to how you intend to bring in new blood into the LP, how you intend to keep them involved, and equally important, what efforts you will undertake with the current activists to both discourage the libertarian litmus test that tends to drive new people away and try to quell most of the well, at least some of the infighting in the party. Uh, similarly, do you intend to share contact information with affiliates and the party so they can engage in party building? And uh, up first is Dr. Joe Jorgensen. 
So thank you for that question. I unwittingly answered that question in some earlier questions. So as you know, I am all about party growth. In fact, if you look at uh, Harry Brown and I in 1996 versus Gary Johnson in 2016. And, and let me first of all say, I've had a lot of people ask me to criticize Gary Johnson's campaign or what could he do better or something like that. I'm not going to do that. I've run at a national level. I know how hard it is to campaign. And I was a Gary Johnson fan. So I'm not going to say that um, he, he did, you know, run a poor campaign. What I'm saying is, I think that membership is important. So let me give you some numbers. First of all, when Harry Brown and I ran in 1996, we had as a goal membership, 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 membership. We wanted to grow the party. We wanted to grow the party because it's important to have candidates, state, local, federal level. When you have those candidates, you need people to donate, people to support, people to knock on doors, people to hand out flyers, and just in general support. We have to grow the movement. So we focused on membership. When Harry Brown ran again in 2000, he changed his focus. He changed it to votes. And it turns out that he fell short on both of them. So as I mentioned, I've got a PhD in psychology. I understand that in order to reach a goal, you have to first verbalize it. You have to have it as a goal. So I do have as a goal getting more membership. So back to us versus Gary Johnson. So we had, we grew the party by 8,500 members, which, like I said, doubled the party, largest growth in history. We only got half a million votes. Now, Gary Johnson, on the other hand, had 4 million votes, which was great. It, 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 it broke a record. However, he only brought in 7,500 members. And what I'm saying is, is yes, we are a political party. Yes, absolutely, we need votes. But we have to focus on membership. We can't go out there and just say, here's a candidate. Here's a special candidate. Just vote for me this one time and don't worry about anything else. We have to say, let's go after long-term people. So who are long-term people? Well, first of all, people who agree with us. We don't go out and and show our platform in, in a light that it's not. We have to go out there and be true to our platform and explain to people, this is our platform. These are our beliefs. Come join us if you agree with our beliefs. You can't go down there with a watered out, watered down platform and get some, you know, libertarian or I mean, uh, Republican light or Democrat light, have them join the party and then leave after a year or two because that's not what they signed up for. So we have to be true to ourselves and we have to explain what we stand for. But we can't just go out there and say, it's my money, you can't have it, freedom, yay, raw. You have to explain to American voters how free helps them. And that's what I plan to do. So what I've done is my top three issues are issues that voters are interested in. So I'm going to talk about health care because that's huge out there. Uh, we're going to head towards a single payer system. Everybody's talking about how health care is too expensive. I'm going to talk about bringing the troops home. And last, unlike most libertarian candidates, I am going to talk about the environment. Why? Because young people are interested in it. If we're going to bring young people into the party, and by the way, if we bring, if we bring young people in the party, now they're with us for 40 years. If we bring older people into the party, well, maybe they're with us for 10 or 20 years. So to go after the young people, we have to talk about what they're interested in. So that's what I'm doing. I am going out there. Now, uh, you asked about sharing data. 
absolutely. Not only would I share data, I would share it real time. That's what's key. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jorgensen. Uh, next is uh, Mr. John Mons. I would just like to say, uh, first of all, you, you have to be a candidate that can inspire, uh, a candidate that can lead. And, and one of the things that I take pride in is the fact that a lot of the factions, even within the Libertarian Party, you know, I get support. I don't care whether it's, it's the Mises Caucus, the Pragmatic Caucus, the, uh, the Radical Caucus, the Waffle House Caucus. You know, I know how to connect to people. That's one of my specialties. But and, and not, you know, wavering on what I believe in and what the party believes in. So you have to have broad appeal. You take that broad appeal and you go out to the general population. And, and one audience that I definitely want to target specifically is the African-American voter. African-American voters are very loyal once they found a home. And the Democrats are so weak that I believe I can make tremendous in ground with attracting African-American voters. You know, and, and why is that? Because when you look at what the Democrats are supposed to stand for, uh, you know, the man on the bottom rung, you know, eliminating poverty, they, they get so many things wrong that I can bring that message in a way for example, I gave a speech back in November to an Afri African-American uh, crowd, and my main point was this. The government is not your friend. When you talk about education, housing, poverty issues, minimum wage you know, issues, and I listed 400 years of examples of why the government is not the African-American's friend. I have a national board member on the NAACP. We have a relationship that I developed for years of being a branch president. He's actually come and, and sat at my home. I told him, you know, about my running. And he said, John, I will help you reach out to as many branches across the country as I can. I just want to get you in front of them and, and let you deliver your message. And that's a message that's going to uh, resonate. But it'll resonate with anybody. I want to go after those tea partiers that got co-opted by the Republicans. Where do they have to go right now? They can come to the Libertarian Party. The Republican Party is weak on Second Amendment. So all demographics presented with that freedom message can attract new members. How do we keep them? Now, first of all, we make sure they turn their back because most people, once they come to the Libertarian Party, once they change that paradigm for themselves, they typically don't leave. And that's what's so important. You know, folks like myself and a lot of activists in this party right now, once they found the Libertarian Party and got hooked on the message of freedom, where else are they going to go? When you talk about sharing data, absolutely. Anything that comes out of this campaign, donors, uh, you know, email addresses, Whatever I can do to help the party, I am willing to do. I've been doing this for 15 years. I plan on doing it for another 15. So, you know, that's you know my take on attracting members, the message once we get them, holding on to members, and 
in just being an inspiration, you know, to those demographics that typically might not even seek us out. All right. Thank you, Mr. Bonds. And finally, Judge Jim Gray. Well, and thank you. Bluntly speaking, we libertarians have made a major mistake for the last couple of decades. And that is we have allowed other people to label us. And how do they label us? Oh, kooks. Oh, I mean, that striptease in our convention didn't help much either. But greed is good. Well, thanks, Ian Rand. You know, if you act in your own economic self-interest, which she defined, then that's a good thing. It works in the society. But, but we need to change that. And for years, I have been trying to mainstream the word libertarian. I've had a blog. It's called Two Paragraphs for Liberty, Liberty, and it's been turned into a book called Two Paragraphs for Liberty, Solutions That Are Practical, Effective, Responsible, Libertarian. I have a, a podcast right now. It's called All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Just try to mainstream this. And I have found, actually, that when I put the name libertarian in the the title of the, of the show, it gets better listenership. So these are things we need to do, but it's got to be more than that. Because in Peace Corps training, I learned that people will not change their attitudes, their actions, their thoughts without a what we call a felt need. That is, it has to come from within. What's in it for me? So we go to, for example, the minority communities and show them, look, there's so many schools failing our children around the country, mostly in high minority areas, that we will empower the parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent for the education of their children, they will demand excellence and they will receive it. Oh, oh I guess I must be libertarian. You show them that. That's, that's where you go. You also, uh, by the way, I've written a, a, a paper called One Man's Libertarian White Paper. You can get it at judgejimgray.com or graysharp2020.com. Uh, and it explains what a libertarian life would look like. All of these things count. We show people that you are our constituency. You inspire them. You show them that it will be a better world if, in fact, you are there. You have a campaign that they would be proud to take to any of their friends, their relatives, etc. By the way, you also get involved in lobbying. Kind of a nasty word, but it's true. You lobby to change the laws in the states to change for ballot access. You call public attention to that. You call public attention to the literal fact that the Commission on Presidential Debates, so-called, is completely rigged. It's completely made up by Republicans and Democrats, totally, totally with the idea of bipartisan, they say, to get the Republican and the Democratic word out to the people. It's I don't use this word a lot, but it's un-American, and people will feel that. You get that word out, they too will want a third voice. It's all combined, but when it comes down to, like I said, it's leadership, and it's being able to have a plan that people will identify with. So yes, we will address all kinds of people, the military with regard to wars, the elderly, the sick with regard to health care. They're all our natural constituents. We get this word out to them. We will be successful. We will make you proud. And we're going to make progress for our party as well as for our country. And yes, of course, we will share whatever information and lists we have uh, with, with the Libertarian Party, naturally. All right. Thank you all. And I have a quick yes or no follow-up on this question. Um, this has been a kind of a controversy for the past yeah. few years. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> will you sign the candidate agreement with the National Party prior to getting the nomination? In other words, will you make it binding? Will you agree? We, we've, we've heard, the point is, is that we've heard this before from candidates, that they'll, do, they'll share data. Um, 
but in the past they have uh, not necessarily followed through. Uh, would you be willing to sign the Canada Agreement with National, assuming it's fair? Let's let's put that there. Um, with that, you will share the data uh, with the National Party at the conclusion of the campaign. It's just a yes or no. Yes. Uh, I already answered your question before you asked it, and the answer is yes. All right. Dr. Jorgensen? Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Let's see here. Uh, this is another one where I get to decide what to ask. So I'm going to ask a question that actually was asked of me today by the media. Um, and I'd like to get your responses to it because, um, you know, it's not, it's obviously something we're all outraged about, but I hadn't really thought about how I would talk to the media about it because I don't really, you know, not state chair anymore. So it's not something I thought about getting a talking point ready for. Um, as you may be aware, there was a terrible incident with a botched no-knock warrant in Kentucky uh, where an innocent EMT was killed. Uh, her live-in boyfriend uh, is now charged with attempted murder because he had the audacity to defend himself from people busting through a door in the middle of the night. Um, how would you? How would each of you respond or, or talk about that issue? And uh, the first person I have up on deck for this is uh, Mr. John Mons. Well, I hadn't heard about the issue, but uh, with any any issue like this, any shooting, uh, wrongful death, uh, is to say, even if it's in the state of Kentucky, I don't care where it is, that justice should be done, you know, that the facts should be be examined. And whoever did the shooting, uh, we probably have to presume it was some type of law enforcement officer um, that, you know, to make sure that this thing is looked into properly. And, and, and that's, you know, something that, um, you know, I would definitely be willing, you know, to bring a, a you know, national attention to whenever issues like this, you know, come up is just saying, hey, we need to keep an, you know, an eye on situations like this and speak out about them. There was an incident in Georgia that we just found out uh, not too long ago where someone was, you know, an African-American was jogging down the street and two citizens that say they were going to make a citizen's arrest wound up uh, killing him. And it, it took two months for them to be indicted, uh, you know, in charge with a crime. And I think that's a shame. So, you know, there's there's certain things you can do at, as president in a, in, a, in a presidential nominee on the federal level. When a lot of these these local uh, issues happen. You know, I would reach out to the, uh, the state of Kentucky, you know, see if there's anything that I could do. Because once again, I mean, you know, you have to work with the people that are, that are close to an issue, um, whether there was an affiliate in the local uh, jurisdiction of it and say, hey, you know, what happened? What do you know about this? You know, what do you need me to say? Um, was there any wrongdoing I could bring to attention? And that's kind of how I, I see when things like this come up. You know, if it's not a federal you know, issue, then uh, just to work with the state parties and state leadership. Thank you, Mr. Mons. Uh, judge Jim Gray. Ken, I was a judge for 25 years, and we learned that we have two mandates, two job descriptions in effect. And the first is to do justice under the facts and the law and the ethics of our profession. But the second is equally important, and that is to have anyone who cares believe justice is done. 
So with regard to the police or investigations or anything with regard to government, transparency. Yes, you know, there's some precautions you take and you don't talk off, off the top of your head, but you have to make people understand or believe that justice is being done. I would lecture various prosecutors and say, you speak for us, you, you act for us, you will do the right reason for the right, the right thing for the right reason every time. When I'm president, I will instruct the attorney general to instruct our United States attorneys to instruct our assistant United States attorneys. That is their mandate every time. And we do it transparently so that people understand justice is made. Bad things happen in this world. I can't help it. We can reduce them. But you, what you do is you train police to understand the mentally ill, for example, to understand various situations uh, and different, different cultures and the rest. But, but the most important thing is to believe that our institutions are working. And regretfully today, and it's my deep sadness, that I think that a lot of reason for this polarization that we're seeing is the people are stopping to think that, oh, the Congress doesn't help us, the justice is meant for the wealthy, that sort of thing. We need to reverse that. We are the people. And the government belongs to us. And if it isn't working, it's our fault. But we need people to understand and believe rightfully that the system is working. And right now, they don't believe that. And that is a real tragedy. Libertarians are needed once again. All right. Thank you, Dr. Or Judge Gray. Excuse me. Dr. Joe Jorgensen, you're on. Um, I'd like to use the first half a minute to finish answering the yes or no question that you asked us very quickly. You asked us if we would sign it. And I just wanted to remind the audience that not only would I sign it, but my campaign chair and I actually flew out to the LNC uh, in Reno and presented them with a contract. So we have already given that paper to the LNC agreeing to do it. And uh, we didn't ask for anything in return. And we just said that we want we will share data. So to ask about the no knock, this is government at its worst. And it's not the first time it's happened. This has been going on for decades. What it's doing is we are putting innocent people's lives at stake because government just gets too power hungry and goes in where it doesn't belong. Many innocent people have been killed because of this. And I'd like to point out that it uh, typically in a case like this, it's because of our drug laws, which we shouldn't have to be begin with. If we got rid of our drug laws, first of all, we wouldn't have people who were waking up in the, you know, woken up in the middle of the night out of their sleep with guns pointed at them. And also, if this is the case I'm thinking of, and, and this happens many times, is the people will come in in plain clothes. And so they will look like burglars. If they had a uniform on, then maybe it would be obvious. But these SWAT teams come in and they bang down the door and oftentimes they will get the wrong person. And again, in this case, I believe they didn't even find any drugs. So what we have to do is we have to get rid of this drug war. I want to declare a drug peace. By getting rid of the drug wars, organized crime would lose you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of profits. Murder, uh, muggings, shoplifting, 
common theft, they would all go down. The street corner drug dealer would be gone. And even more important, when we talk about minorities and we talk about neighborhoods where um, where the poor live, right now, many of them, the, the little kids look up to the drug dealer as their model because these people, they're the ones driving around in the Mercedes and flashing all the money. And by getting the profits out of it, now that's no longer a, a role model. It is just tragic that in our poor neighborhoods, criminals are seen as a positive role model, that that's who they want to emulate. If we get rid of these drug laws, streets and homes will be safer. Courts and jails will focus on the real bad guys, not the drug users. And again, this is what these no-knock laws tend to go after. Um, also, illness and death from tainted drugs would plummet, and people with drug problems could easier ask for help. If I could sit down and talk with every soccer mom in this country, what I would say is, you know, I, well, I would ask, uh, because, and by the way, questions are often a great way to bring somebody around to your point, is is I would ask a mother, how many times have you heard of a liquor store owner visiting your child's school trying to sell gin on the playground or, you know, in, in the bathroom? And the answer is probably no. How many times have you heard of somebody breaking into homes because they couldn't pay for vodka with their salary? Again, the problem is not the drug use. The problem is the drug laws. So if we got rid of the drug laws, we would get rid of so many tragedies like this. And as I said, I want to declare a drug peace and get rid of this drug war. All right. Thank you all for that. And before we go on, I just want to, again, uh, remind people that you are watching the final Libertarian Party of Kentucky debates of, of the debate series from the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. Uh, again, thanking Chris Spangle and the We Are Libertarians for broadcasting this tonight. Uh, and also, I was informed that I'm supposed to thank the New Jersey Libertarian Party. I guess we were working together with them. I apologize uh, to the people in New Jersey. I, um, I'm a last minute moderator. But I'm sure you did something awesome, and that's why you're supposed to be thanked. And thank you for doing something awesome, because um, that's what we do. We thank awesome people. Uh, I have a question in off. It's, we were running behind. Now we're running ahead. So I've got a question on Facebook that uh, I'd like to read, if that's okay. Um, if he quits writing more stuff, so that I can actually read the question. Stop it, Dale. All right. Uh, what are your views on the future of monetary policy in America? vis-a-vis -vis the American dollar versus the gold standard versus cryptocurrency. Um, and then the follow-up to that is, is it possible to administer the income tax fairly and would you repeal it? So that's kind of really two questions. They're all monetary policy, though, I guess. Um, so uh, that's, uh, if you guys want to do that, uh, four minutes. And I believe that actually starts this time with uh, Judge Jim Gray. Well, those are two interesting questions. And, and uh, of course... Look, the first problem we had is with the Fed manufacturing money, printing money. Then Nixon takes us off the gold standard, which was a tragedy. It used to be when I was growing up, you'd have silver certificates. Well, they were confiscated or taken away, and now they're, they're uh, Federal Reserve notes with nothing to back them up. That's a really major mistake. What we need to do as well, though, because if the United States has benefited a great deal because the dollar is the standard around the world that isn't necessarily going to remain. It could be China's currency, it could be others. So we need to get the deficit down. We need to balance our books. So we need to 
restrict the federal government spending and restrict the federal government. So that's a major thing. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoins, the rest of that, these are fine. Now, I know the government doesn't like them because they can't control us. That's just too bad. You know, it used to be that you could barter, you could have a gold coin, you could have a silver coin that could be used all the way around the world. If you use those and you get back to that stable currency, that really takes a bite out of inflation. So those are important things as well. Yes, I would like to get rid of the IRS. Yes, I would like to get rid of the income tax. Milton Friedman said, and he's right, that you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you tax. Well, today we're taxing success, we're taxing income, and we're basically subsidizing consumption. If you turn that around, you would change things quite a bit, but reduce those taxes. But taxes are not gonna go away. Look, particularly with this COVID virus pandemic going around stuff. So it's a pipe dream to say that we're going to eliminate the IRS tomorrow or a week from Thursday. So you address it. We again, we'd be happy to talk about it, have that turn a crutch into a ladder program that would change the incentives, get rid of 80% of the welfare, get rid of 80% of the intrusion of the, of the IRS, and that would make things a whole lot better. So those are our positions. We have plans. We have the leadership and the inspiration to be able to address that with people, to show that they have that felt need and make progress. You know, if you're going to say, I'm going to eliminate the IRS. Well, first, you can't do it. A president doesn't have that ability. And secondly, it's not going to happen. You go for all or nothing. You almost always get nothing. But ask any football coach. The team that wins the most first downs is usually the team that wins the game. I want to win the game. I want to move that ball down the field. So we make incremental progress, show people, gather more strength, gather more members, gather more, more votes and, and delegates, and then we start to win. And that feeds on itself. So yes, we go to cryptocurrency, whatever. We strengthen the dollar by eliminating this, this deficit spending that we're doing so magnificently now, it's awful. We're putting our children and our grandchildren's safety and future at risk. We need libertarians. We need to bring what libertarians would bring, which is liberty, which is responsibility. That's what we do. Let's get going. I'm excited. We'll continue. And then that means that uh, Dr. Jorgensen, you are next. Absolutely. I'm for free market money, Bitcoin, anything else. The free market pretty much does everything better than government could ever dream of doing. What's really sad about the Federal Reserve, it, Federal Reserve is it basically solved a problem, so supposedly solved a problem that was already being fixed. Uh, what was happening is, yes, banks were, uh, you know, banks had to help each other out. And basically, if there were runs on banks, the banks themselves back in the early 1900s, they had figured out alone without government help, a freeway or, or their own market way of helping each other out to which if there was a bank in trouble, the other ones would step in and help. So they had a great system going on. And then once again, the government steps in sees a problem that's already being fixed and says, oh, we can fix it better. And instead it made it worse. So they created the Fed. And what's really sad is that the American people do not understand. They, a, a lot of Americans think, you know, if it weren't for the government, if it weren't for the Federal Reserve, the depression would have lasted so much longer. Actually, it was the Federal Reserve that caused the problem. It didn't realize how much power it had. And as I mentioned, we already had a free market solution 
situation in which banks were willingly, without coercion, helping each other out. And by the way, if you think about it, that's basically what it boils down to in the Libertarian Party. There are two ways we can interact with each other. There are two ways that companies can interact with each other, either voluntarily or coercion. They were doing it voluntarily. The government, of course, comes in and does it the only way it knows how coercively. So what the Fed does now is basically they print money out of thin air and then it devalues the dollar. So what it does is it devastates people's savings account. It devastates retirement. It puts millions of seniors into poverty. And what's scary is that so much of this is done. Um, it's so insidious. Uh, it causes inflation. A lot of Americans don't realize that basically when they print more money, another tax has been passed, not a tax that the Congress agreed on, not a tax that's out in the open where the Americans can judge it, but basically with the printing press. So now they've been taxed behind the scenes and they don't even realize it. You cannot increase wealth by printing money. The people who end up with it are basically the political bureaucrats who have their friends. Uh, the cost of groceries go up. We need to stabilize the dollar. So we need to have free market money. If we did that, retirements would be safe. Companies could better plan for their future because they wouldn't be on this roller coaster ride. And once again, we would have the free market in which we would deal with each other voluntarily, not under government coercion. All right. Finally, uh, Mr. Mons. Hey. You got to be kidding me. This, this is an area I definitely disagree with Judge Gray about. Uh, being a libertarian candidate and not being able to say you want to get rid of the income tax because you don't you don't think the American public, you know, would would buy it. You don't think they would uh, agree to that. I've asked that question, not to libertarians, to non-libertarians. Would you like to get rid of the federal income tax? Would you like to keep all your money? And would you like to get rid of the IRS? I have never had anybody, you know, say no to that. They might not say, well, how do you do that? Then I talk about repealing the 16th Amendment. So, you know, it's, it's an argument that, first of all, the reason we should bring that argument is because the Democrats and the, the Republicans aren't. Are any of them talking about ending the federal income tax? And why? Absolutely not. So most American voters of the, the, the public, they will never hear the argument. That's why we have to bring it. And that's what's so key in having a strong candidate that understands libertarianism and saying, hey, let's offer them to the offer it to the public and let them decide. We don't need to decide before even saying it that they're not going to go for it. That's that's ridiculous. So. You know, that's an issue maybe uh, uh, Congressman Amash can help with when I talk about, you know, getting into the repeal of the 16th Amendment process. Maybe he can launch the bill. Maybe uh, some of our other uh, candidates on the state level, because it'll have to be approved uh, uh, on the state level. Let's make it an issue we can talk about. Let the Democrats and, and Republicans argue about what I call the slave tax. When you use certain language, you know, it's very effective. You know, if you tell people, did you know back, you know, decades ago, it used to be a 90% uh, tax rate and that there's nothing in the 16th Amendment that says it couldn't even be higher? 
if they wanted to make it that way? And should the government have the ability to take everything that you earn? Make that argument. Now, going back to the Fed and fiscal policy, we have to tell the American public and give them examples that they will understand. You know, I, I carry a, a silver dollar right here in, in my pocket for luck. And you say a silver dollar in Georgia right now can buy over $10 worth of gas. What can one of those fiat, fiat Federal Reserve notes uh, buy you? Not even half a tank. And get the public asking why. First of all, when you talk about destroying the dollar, tell, tell the public what the Fed does. It counterfeits money. It makes it up out of thin air. I've done that with my kids. I said, you know, if you could create money, you know, on the printer at the house and you could legally do it, what would you do? I said, they said, well, I should I print as much as I needed? Yeah, but if you keep printing all this money and giving it away and giving it away, it actually destroys the value of it. It's a very simple lesson. So the, we have to use examples, things that people understand that will get them to start looking at us differently. We're not kooks and quacks, quacks. You know, we have a handle on what's wrong with this country. It's called government. It's called anti-freedom and tyranny. But we have to give them things that they can easily understand and grasp. Sound money is easy to understand. Slave tax, they get it just by the connotation. That's what we need a candidate to do. We don't need a candidate that's going to say, ah, oh, we can't even make the argument. All right. That was the first answer that was perfectly timed. All right. Um, let's see here. I have a quick one-minute guy, and since I'm the moderator, I guess I get to make things up on the fly. Um, the uh, In the news recently, uh, President Trump has said that he set out a task force to figure out which of these regulations that had been temporarily suspended should remain suspended. I'd be interested from finding out from each of you which regulation – you know, it is that you would like to see repealed and feel free not to use all four minutes for this because it's, you know, I'm, I'm more thinking what agency, what, what, you know, one or two sentence thing uh, you would like to see repealed that's been suspended or maybe not suspended during this whole uh, pandemic. And I believe that starts with uh, Dr. Joe Jorgensen. Wait, did you just ask a libertarian what should be repealed and how long do I get to answer that? <laughs> which, which one do you want first? Just the, you get one thing. What's first? Well, regarding the COVID, I would say the FDA that has blocked testing and getting uh, testing and drugs out there. If I understand the question correctly. Yeah. Okay. John Mons? Now, I would say all the regulations, first of all, he's talking about picking and choosing which one should uh, uh, stay uh, suspended. I would say anything that they've done in, in relation uh, to the COVID and the reaction, uh, any of these regulations they suspended, first of all, all of those should stay suspended because they work. You know, and that, that's one of the things that's, that's coming out of this, this, this crisis is, is the fact that, you know, one – you know, uh, is civil disobedience when people, you know, right now finally reach their breaking point and, and they're actually looking to say, uh, well, I won't use that language, but I'm tired of government trying to control my life. So you go from there and you look at, uh, you know, working on 
uh, the, the FDA regulation of, of prescription. You know, one of the things that they suspended was, you know, dice, uh, doctors who hadn't been licensed, they may have retired, uh, making it easy for them to come back and practice again. Uh, you know, so everything that they've suspended, all the regulations that they did and people can see is to help make the marketplace uh, better and easier for these things to take place. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say keep them all. And, and then as a libertarian, you start looking for everything else, you know, to go with it. All right. I, and I pause. Oh. I know, Joe. I know. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. I, th I thought it was supposed to be one or two sentences. Do we get the whole four minutes or what? I might have misunderstood. It is. It was just supposed to be one sentence. And I apologize. Okay. I mean, okay. Listen, all, all of us here, every single one of us, Chris behind the scenes, everybody watching agrees they all need to go away. But if you get one, that's what I want to know. What's the first one you get? If you or if you only get one, what's the one you want? That's what the answer I'm looking for. So, um, Mr. Moss, do you have just one, or are you just you good with what you said? No, I, I'm good. I, I took a little bit longer, but that's right. I'm not stopping with one. I want them all. <laughs> no, I, 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 hey, you know, I want a Lamborghini. We're all going to be disappointed, but that's okay. And you can have one if uh, you really want it. <laughs> if I work really hard, yes. Uh, uh, Judge Jim Gray, what, what one agency, what would be the first one you'd get rid of? Uh, uh, the first, the first yeah. thing, an institutional problem, and we should bring each one under a sunset provision to Congress, and they will expire unless Congress reinforces them. But the first one would be the FDA is charged with safety and efficiency. Eliminate all of the efficiency. We'll take care of two thirds of the problems. That's what I would eliminate. Boom. Right away. Okay. And but for the record, I'm in agreement with that, that uh, the FDA uh, has shown itself to be the least helpful agency in this entire crisis. Uh, no, it, it's not least helpful. It's harmful. Yes. It's killed thousands of people. Yes. Agreed. All right. I wanted to go on something nice that we all agreed on before we get into the hard questions, because the hard questions are harder than they've been before, folks. And, and I apologize in advance. I did not write these. So just so you know, buckle up. <laughs> I did not write these. All right. So the first person up is John Mons. So I'm going to go down here to John. All right. First question. John, your website, and entertainingly, we've already talked about some of this. John, your website indicates that you want to completely eliminate the federal income tax while reducing the scope of the federal government to the size the Constitution envisions. The Constitution envisions a Department of Defense and a Department of State. How do we pay for those without income taxes? That's not too bad. <laughs> well, I mean, one, when, when people get all this money back from, from not having a federal income tax, uh, the government can do like they government can do a GoFundMe as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, for those who really want, you know, to to um, or think that we need a big Department of Defense or a State Department, let them fund it uh, and, and let the people have a say. So when we shrink government down to, to where, you know, it barely affects our lives. Uh, I don't think we have to worry about not having enough people to fund the things that they truly believe in. You know, when you when you make it voluntary instead of forcing it on people, government has to automatically cut back. So, you know, that that's my philosophy. You know, let's get rid of the income tax and the little that's left uh, on the federal budget. Also, you can look at uh, taking everything down to the state level and not having it on the federal level. If there's some things that. Um, 
we need to help the states or this is a, a, a national um, you know a problem that we need to solve whether it's you know handling diplomacy or having a minute force uh, what we need to look at also on the state level is going back to uh, the state the national guards let the states develop their own national guards and just have a, a few uh, federal oversight of the National Guards. We don't need this big federal uh, bureaucracy on a national level and, you know, push it down to the states. All right. Thank you. All right. Judge Gray, you're up next. And boy, you're going to hate me for asking this. You've already asked this in other debates and I've seen it and I apologize. Um, There are a number of people that are a little upset about what uh, you have branded as a negative income tax, what some people call universal basic income. Um, people believe that this is off-platform. Um, a, is it a platform position you would be willing to revisit if you heard from significant numbers of people within the party that they are opposed to it? B, is this an attempt by your campaign to channel disaffected voters on the left, the Bernie Sanders folks, who are uncomfortable voting for Trump or Biden, and C, is this something that is transitory and would be phased out or something that you envision as permanent part of fiscal policy? First of all, let me again say I do not favor the universal basic income. That would give money to all I hope I don't have to explain that. Please, may I never hear that word again. <laughs> Secondly, this is a program that is addressing this awful tax situation we have today, the awful welfare system we have today. It's going to show people, it'll come into their living rooms, into their hearts, how it's going to be made less awful. In fact, in many ways, it will be made good. It will be made so that it will provide, instead of the crutch of welfare, the ladder, like we call it, and I'd love to talk about it more, to get out of poverty. The IRS today is probably the most intrusive agency that we have. Can we get rid of it today? I've heard people say, let's get rid of the IRS. I haven't heard any plan on doing that. They won't be able to. It's not, I, the IRS and income tax is not going to go away anytime soon. Let's be realistic. You know, platform or not, it isn't. We can be purity. We can go for all or nothing. But this plan will do away with about 80% of the intrusion, the cost, the expense, the bureaucracy of the IRS. So once we see this in operation, we're going to convert a lot of people to the libertarian movement because, hey, what you're talking about is better. Hey, instead of I signed my income tax return about a month ago, I'm a modestly intelligent person, Ken. I didn't even know what I was signing. It's so complicated and you'd go to here and there. We can turn in our income taxes on a postcard. You know, we will be able to do that. And we will provide incentives for people to get out of welfare. If you want to keep the present system, which basically keeps people down, it's more valuable to them to stay in welfare than to start progressing out, to get an education and get out. If you are a single mother, it is stupid for you because of welfare to have your, the father of your child live with you because you're going to lose lots of money. So it changes the incentives to where they should be. I'm not backing away from it. It's Milton Friedman all the way around. He said it. It's, he called it a negative income tax. I call it a stipend. But then it would be assigned also to a flat graduated flat tax. It is, it is a temporary thing that we will be able to build upon and show people and make progress. Three years from now, 
four years from now, we will be so far now down the field. So that's where we are going. I'm not backing away from it. I am trying to accomplish the same goals in the practical libertarian party in the platform, but I'm going to do it incrementally because can all or nothing transparently doesn't work. And nobody has spoken as a candidate in this election has come up with a plan to do away with any agencies, much less the income tax and the IRS. Judge Jim Gray does have that plan. You can take pot shots at it if you want to, but at least it's there and I'm putting myself out on it. It is something that will work and will transparently move us forward. I'm proud of it. No, it's not going away. I, it looks like Mr. Mons is looking to use a rebuttal. He's got his hand up. Is that what you're looking to do, Mr. Mons? Yes, absolutely. Let me let me take one minute once again to say, how can you say there's not a plan? The plan is simple. You propose that the 16th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. That's the plan. That's the proposal. You let the other parties argue over why we should or shouldn't do it, you know, you put it in their ballpark. You let them tell the American people why they should be enslaved with this assiduous uh, federal income tax. So, you know, you can't just say that there's no plan. That's all. All right. Just a, three words. Rhetoric, rhetoric, talk, but not a plan. All right. One more. <laughs> that all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna assess uh, challenge or uh, rebuttal cards for that next time. Don't no more of that, please. Just otherwise, it turns it goes crazy if we don't assess I, I, me. Assess me. Time, that's fine with me. All right. So, uh, Dr. Jorgensen, you are next, and because of this, I had to scroll off here. All right. On your website, you say, "quote As president, I will work tirelessly to slash federal spending." make government much, much smaller, and let you keep what you earn. You propose to keep any portion of the federal government, such as the Department of Defense or state, and if so, how do we pay for it without taxes? Further, if someone refused to pay taxes, would you would prosecutors in your administration prosecute them? Um. Okay, I think I got all of those parts. Uh, first, if you don't mind, I thought I would uh, uh, clarify something that Judge Gray had said. He said that the FDA is tasked with two things, efficiency and safety. And I just wanted to point out it's actually efficacy and safety, that until 1962, it was safety. And then after that, it was whether or not the drugs worked. So um, because, you know, I mean, one thing the FDA isn't is efficient, and uh, it's certainly not making anybody else efficient. So, yes, if we look at spending right now, we've got, uh, well, first of all, income tax only brings in maybe half of all the money. So everybody thinks, well, if we get rid of the income tax, oh, my gosh, there's no money left. No, we're only talking about half. But absolutely, we need dramatic cuts. So Social Security spends about $1.2 billion a year. What I would do is have an immediate opt-out. And then for the older people, I would sell off assets, government assets. And we've got assets such as buildings, including government housing. We've got mineral rights, uh, water rights, uh, national parks. We've got all sorts of property, uh, downtown post office buildings that we can sell. 
and and even a part of that is still well over uh, something like 150 trillion dollars. I mean, there's there's various estimates, but what we would do is for everybody who is older, we would say, okay, you put in all this money. What we're going to do is, you know, that your money was not put in a lockbox, like they said. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the assets. Uh, in which were which were bought unconstitutionally, I might add, by taxpayers, and we're going to sell them and give the money back to the taxpayers. So people who've paid in for Social Security 40, 50, 60 years, they are going to get that money back by selling off assets. So that's going to save $1.2 trillion a year. That's um, about a third of the, the you know, there, there are three uh, big areas that we spend money in, that's about a third of them. With uh, the military, we spend about a trillion dollars a year on that. I think we can reasonably cut back the military by three quarters and spend, instead of a uh, trillion dollars, we would spend, um, you know, uh, maybe 25 to 35% of that. And even if we did that, our military would still be 10 times bigger than Russia's military, it would still be three times bigger than China's military. That's even after cutting it by three quarters. So look at that tax savings. Once again, we're not going and asking middle class people, people are making $60,000, $70,000 a year, $40,000 a year to pay taxes, to pay for this military that we don't need. Right now, our military is basically being the policeman of the world. We're where we shouldn't be. We need to stop paying for that. Let wealthy Europe pay for their own military. So we can easily make those cuts and we can make some of them pretty rapidly. Now, the other huge part out of the three big spending parts would be Medicare and Medicaid. That would take a little longer to phase out Although, you know, I mean, we could sell assets and, you know, give people health savings accounts, so that could be done. However, the problem with Medicaid and Medicare is that, yes, prices went up when the government instituted Medicaid and Medicare. And there are other, re other reasons, too, the prices went up. So what we first have to do is bring down health care costs before we start getting people off of Medicare and Medicaid, because right now they couldn't pay for it anyway. So we can get a huge chunk of our budget gone. All right. Uh, while we're in the middle of the mean questions, I will uh, quickly... Again, thank our uh, partners in this. Uh, this is the Libertarian Party of Kentucky's final presidential debate. You guys have run the gauntlet of our debates and made it to the final, and congratulations to all three of you. Uh, but I'd like to thank uh, Chris Spangle, and we are Libertarians, again, for broadcasting this debate. Uh, thank our partners, the New Jersey Libertarian Party. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thank you guys, the candidates, for being here. So thank you all very, very much. All right. Back to the tough questions. I guess I'm going to go ahead and keep the rotation pattern going, which if I'm not mistaken, that's one, two, three, one, two, three. Let's see. I'm trying to figure out who's, who's next. I apologize. Hold on one second here. One, one, two, three, one, two, three. That means that Judge Gray is – I think Judge Gray is next. Is that right? Am I, am I right there? Am I, I am. So. Okay. All right. Judge Gray's not going to speak to me after this debate. I did not write these. Just for the I did not write these. Um, take, take the gloves off and hit me. Go ahead. All right. Um, welcome back to the jury nullification issue. And um, let's see here. He says, uh, you think the juries have the right to nullify and judge the law as well as the facts. 
but judges should not instruct them that they have that power so that the system itself would not fall apart. Uh, also, you think protesters should not be on courthouse grounds uh, advocating for it. Uh, let's talk about defense counsel. Do you think that defense counsel should have the right, without being sanctioned or admonished by the judge, to urge the jury to do justice and ignore unjust laws? Also, do you have a problem with protesters sitting on sidewalks right outside the courthouse grounds, passing out jury nullification pamphlets to those walking by, including prospective jurors? I didn't write that. (laughs) That's all right. Look, I've been a judge for 25 years. I can tell you directly that it is a buttress, it is a safeguard, it is a protection that jurors are able to and do look at the facts, look at the law, look at the situation, and if they decide that the proper decision is not guilty, that ends the case, no appeal, it's over, good. In fact, it's virtually treasonous to who we are to say otherwise. So then again, give me a little credit. I've seen the system for so long. I believe in justice. I do not believe in tampering, outsiders tampering with justice. So now I would not instruct a jury that the law doesn't matter. And and take me with you if you will, but think about lynchings, think about domestic violence. You know, am I going to instruct them with that regard as well? So no one has better credentials than I do for fighting the war on drugs. I mean, that's really straightforward. But from the system, we want justice. We want to do justice for everybody. We do not want that interference. It's called jury tampering, and it is and should be a law. Now, Okay, the rest of these questions are First Amendment questions, and and that's different, but yes. Okay, let's not have somebody in the courtroom saying, this guy's a jerk, or this guy's an angel. You know, that's tampering. So now it's a question of where. Well, the decision has been, and I support it, most judges do that are in the front lines, that look, if you're on court property, you are probably trying to discuss with jurors, you're tampering with jurors and changing their minds, wrongly. If you wish to exercise your First Amendment rights, bless you, protected, fantastic. You can do it with an op-ed piece. You can do it across the street. You can do it in the the place next to it. But instead of drawing a line as far as, well, you can do it 50 feet away from the courtroom, but not 60 feet or that sort of thing. You have to draw a line. Life is complicated. So, yes, I would not allow people to pamphlet, to poison jurors' minds, to change, to tamper with jurors' minds on the court property. That is my position, and I think that it's an appropriate one. I think it is is something that pretty much every judge that's ever sat on the bench or on an appellate court bench would subscribe to. I don't want to say to the jurors, laws are not important. That's my position. Now, I can tell you that what we're doing is jury jury nullification has nothing to do with the presidency. It has nothing. It's a purity test, you know, and it's being applied to my campaign. Agree with me, disagree with me. I take that position and I stand with it. But I have decades of writing, decades of speeches supporting campaigns for liberty. The totality of my work is maybe being lost because one campaign wants to take advantage of one slip on a podcast when I forgot to mention the first part. Look, is this a libertarian party or is this basically a cancel culture? I think we stand for liberty and I stand for justice. That's who I am. You can agree with me or not. Larry Sharp has an 80-20 test where if you agree with me 80% of the time, we're allies. I think this is more like 90-10 or maybe even 91-9. Let's not be a cancel culture. Let's go for the presidency and adopt our liberty values. That's what I think. I stand on it. Oh, by the way, let me, let me say one more thing. 
please, Ken, that uh, Joe Jorgensen was right with regard to the word to the FDA. Uh, it is efficacy. I stand, I stand corrected. All right. And speaking of Dr. Jorgensen, the next question is first. Uh, let's see here. Looking at. Oh, okay. Uh, Dr. Jorgensen, uh, one of the primary concerns that has been raised with your candidacy is that compared with Trump or Biden or even Justin Amash, you have you don't really have a national profile or na national name recognition, which will make it far more difficult for you to achieve or receive any attention from media sources necessary to run an effective presidential campaign. How do you intend to build your profile in a short period of time to achieve the goals you have set for your campaign to build the party and help affiliates retain ballot access? I will reiterate, I did not write these questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, uh, nobody's running for president right now who has national name recognition. So I'm not sure why I'm the only one who's getting that question because none of us have national name recognition. And that's the problem with the Libertarian Party. So my answer is we've got to grow membership. So I've done it before. I can do it again. Uh, we've built the party before. We've doubled the party size. I would like to at least bring in as many members as I did before. So how would I build my profile? First of all, I would like to point out, and again, notice if you go to my website, I don't point this out, but there's one obvious way that I would get a national profile, which is I would be the only woman with 50 state ballot access. And we keep hearing the media, again, not libertarians, but we keep hearing the media talking about two old rich white men. And I'd like to point out two old rich white men who have had sexual assault or at least sexual impropriety, um, uh, you know, proprieties uh, leveled against them. And so I would be out of that arena and I would be a natural to go on some of these shows that uh, some of the people uh, want to go to. In fact, uh, I'd like to mention when I was interviewed for the uh, Pragmatic Caucus, I hope I, I hope it's um, I wasn't told that the questions were um, uh, confidential, so I hope they don't mind my spilling the questions. But one of the things that they asked me was if you could be on any t TV show, which TV show would you be on? Or maybe they just said show, uh, but of course TV gets the most audience, and. My first answer, which was kind of tongue in cheek, would be the Trump-Biden debate. <laughs> now, I knew that's not what the uh, viewer was looking for, though. So what I said is rather than going on Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow or whoever, I would want to go on Dr. Oz because Dr. Oz has been there for 10 years. He's got a loyal following. He's got a lot of um, homemakers. He's got a lot of women who follow him. And Dr. Oz is very liberal. If you, you know, he doesn't come out and say, I'm a liberal Democrat, but if you listen to him, you hear that he's got a very definite slant. So if, and, and by the way, Dr. Oz, yes, had uh, Bernie Sanders on the show and he's had some other, the, some of the other presidential candidates. So there's no reason why he sh shouldn't have me on as well. So if I can get on the Dr. Oz show and remember healthcare is one of my top three issues and I'm well versed in it. I understand not only the FDA, but I can give facts, statistics, how basically people never spend other people's money as well as their own, and how we can look at Singapore and see how their costs are 75% lower than ours. If I can get on Dr. Oz and maybe open his eyes to this 
and, and maybe transform him just a little, then maybe the slant of his show would be different day after day, week after week, and open up to the millions of viewers. If, on the other hand, I were on Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow, okay, I'm on for 15 minutes, that's it. The next night they've got somebody else on with an opposing view. So that would be a way that I could get national media. And again, since he's allowed Bernie Sanders, who did not get the nomination, I don't see why he wouldn't let me on. And again, with my profile, I think a lot of, um, and I am a mother, by the way, and a grandmother. Um, I've got a grandson who's almost two years old. So it would be one mother talking to other mothers in the audience. All right, thank you for that. And it's funny you mentioned that uh, you're the only one that got the question because guess what Dr. Mr. Mons' question is? The exact same question. Uh, <laughs> How would you overcome the lack of name ID and the, the uh, you know, trying to get media? How, how, how would you accomplish that? Well, no, I, I do have some name recognition for my races in Georgia. But like, like I said earlier, that there's no hiding the fact that my nomination would be historic. I mean, the media, I imagine, and, and you can just ask yourselves, what do you think the media would do if I was nominated? Do you think they would ignore me or even try to ignore me? I don't think they can. It'd be nearly impossible to do so. The fact is, though, that with that media attention, you still have to be able to do something with it. And that's something that you know I have experienced uh, being involved with the media from running libertarian campaigns. I'm not afraid to take libertarian positions and present them to the public, whether it's uh, a, a live interview on television, because I've done those with my campaign, whether it's live debates. I've done those already. And I'd, I'd love for you to just imagine me on the stage. It doesn't have to be the, the one national debate or whatever debate. Put me up there with Trump and Biden. And, and see what happens. You know, man, it's bare knuckle MMA out there. That, that's my attitude. I care too much about what we're doing, what this party has done, and about freedom than to get an opportunity and not take it to them. So, you know, my attitude is, I mean, it's full out fisticuffs. You know, let's, let's go. Uh, don't hold anything back. You know, people talk about Trump. I'm talking about poking Trump every chance I get because you know he can't take it. He has to respond, you know, just poking him, poking him. And, and, you know, that's what we do. So we need a candidate that's unequivocatable about taking the message to the opposition. You know, we don't need anybody weak. We don't need anybody with half measures. We don't need anybody who the public doesn't think is serious about what they're doing. Cause, cause I am, and, and I do have that track record and I guarantee you the, LP will get national recognition with my nomination. All right. We are now running right on schedule, which is excellent. Who doesn't love running on schedule? Uh, let's see here. So um, we are now to the point where we do uh, candidate to candidate questions. And according to the format uh, that was presented to me to give to you, uh, you have one minute or less to ask the question to one other participant uh, who will have two minutes or less to uh, answer that question. And uh, I'm just setting my timer back up for less time. 
so I can get that there. And so uh, let's see. If I am not mistaken, we are now at the bottom of the order. Let me make sure here. This is the hard part for me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Flip a coin. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. Um, we're going to do closing statements in the same order as we're going to, we did the opening. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go, let's, let's try to make this fair so that we get something right. Uh, let's go with, um, let's see, Moz went last. So that means, yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to just go with Jim, uh, Judge Gray. Go ahead. Sorry. Am I, am I asking a question? You are asking a question to one of your fellow panelists who is not me. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's see. I'm not going to ask Ken a question. Uh, John Mons, sir. I have written an op-ed piece. It's called An Open Letter to the ACLU, NAACP, and MALDEF, calling their attention to so many people, frequently heavily minority, are the failed schools. They're failing our children, and they're mostly in what they would call their constituents. So, I'm asking them why they do not lead the charge in favor of charter schools, school choice, homeschooling, that sort of thing, and get away from the regular schooling. You have been involved with the NAACP. I'm just asking your advice. How can we get the NAACP to underscore, to write the, lead the charge in favor of excellence in schools, getting away from the teachers union schools and getting back to excellence. Please help us. How do we do that? Because you're on the NAACP in uh, Grady County, Georgia. And uh, I understand that uh, uh, that didn't go very well there. Give us some help. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm seeing the screen. But uh, yeah, like, like I said earlier, you know, one way that we can do some outreach is, is from our affiliations. And I've been a branch president for the NAACP for, for over eight years, and I have those relationships. Um, and when you make the case, all I have to do is talk about and how I would do it. And but I, I would I would do it for any of our nominees saying, hey, uh, we need to have a voice to be able to speak to you whatever way you choose to, to let you know about what we believe in. So what I have in mind is this, I just lend credibility. And, that, and that's why I think it's important, you know, to, to let me uh, speak to whatever group like the NAACP, the ACLU, because I've worked with them here locally and it's easy. I'll give you one example. Uh, well, outreach, and as you have to use certain language. And what I talk about, uh, I had a debate with the former uh, governor of Georgia back when I ran in 2010, and I was speaking to the African-American Chamber of Commerce of Atlanta, and I just used the term government schools and changing it from public schools because public schools make people think that, you know, it's nice and fuzzy. But you should have seen uh, Governor Barnes uh, literally shrink and, and, and twist in the seat just by using the term government schools. So it's, it's about language. I can talk about experience of most of the fighting that I've done on the local level has been uh, against government factions. It's been the, the EMS. Uh, it's been the, the Board of Education in which I was banned from the meeting and had the police called on me. It's been the county commission. So I just can lend a credible ear to saying why government is not your friend and in framing that 
but there, there's huge demographics of voters out there that just need to hear us. And you, you work through affinity groups uh, like my fraternity, for example, has chapters all around the country. And then those are the groups I want to reach out to. All right, we'll stop my timer here before it starts making too much noise. All right, we'll just go in order then. Uh, Dr. Jorgensen, you get to ask a and, – and actually, let me stop right here. I see in the chat, and I apologize, Mr. Mons, I, I missed your attempt to get a rebuttal in earlier. Do you want to just hold off on that now, or do you want to take that rebuttal? I, I, don't, know, one. I, I, don't, I don't think I have one. You're good? Yes. Okay, cool. Sorry. All right, uh, Dr. Jorgensen, it is your turn to ask a question uh, to either of the other panelists. Okay, so this is for Judge Jim Gray, and the good news is I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to mention the word that you never want to hear again. <laughs> so here's my question, um, Jim. You said that it's the government's obligation to have plans in place when disaster strikes, such as hurricanes and earthquakes, and this sounds a lot like maybe you support FEMA, which was brought into existence by an executive order from Jimmy Carter. But FEMA takes away incentives for people to live in safe areas and build safe structures. And it forces poor people living in, let's say, Appalachia to subsidize people who own vacation homes on the coast. And as with all government, it usually hurts the people it's supposed to help, such as temporary trailers and FEMA set up for displaced residents of uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. In fact, maybe you heard how... Um, FEMA was actually turning back Walmart trucks filled with water. So two-part question, do you support keeping FEMA? And do you believe that government can plan better than the private sector when it comes to uh, disasters? Okay, well, thank you for that. I did say that the government should have an obligation, does have an obligation to plan and then give out information, be in effect the clearinghouse for information. That's as important. So, but the bridge isn't there, Joe, I'm sorry. But to say that I want the government to plan for, for emergencies and then support FEMA is simply wrong. Absolutely not. I've, I've stated numbers of times that we should, in effect, by private contract with groups such as the Red Cross who do it so much better uh, to, to address emergencies. I would dis disband FEMA as soon as I could. If I have to bring it to Congress and the rest of that, like I said in my sunset provisions. But no, I do not support FEMA. It's a catastrophe. You know, you're right with regard to the hurricanes in Houston and the rest of that. FEMA had all kinds of trailers, very expensive, something like kept parked 200 miles from where they were needed. No, it's a disaster. I quote in, in that regard, think, think mosquito nets. What is he talking about now? Well, we all know that in many places in the world still, regretfully, there's malaria, places in Africa, et cetera. So if you put a mosquito net on the ground, you're probably going to save at least 10% of people from getting malaria and maybe dying. The same mosquito net is put on the ground by the government at something like $12.50. The same mosquito is put by private foundations at about $4. It's about a third the cost, the same mosquito net. And that translates all the way around. That's the libertarian approach. Get government out of it. Do it by private contract with agencies. But don't make that bridge for me, please. It doesn't fly. When bridges don't fly, I guess you travel over them. All right. And uh, finally, uh, Mr. Mons, it is your turn to ask a one-minute question uh, to one well, of your um, fellow yep, yep. We get three extra minutes, so could I use one of my minutes? You absolutely can use one right now if you so choose. Yes, absolutely. 
Yes. So, and I just want to make sure I understand this. So it sounds to me like you, like privatizing where the government would hire the contractors. Why couldn't you have the, the businesses just do it organically? That's what's happened in the past. We, you know, America has a great tradition of people responding to the challenge of people, you know, in Katrina, people were just getting into boats. After the, uh, let me mention, Cato has a great article on this, how after the San Francisco earthquake, how businesses were just donating money and helping them millions of dollars, and they weren't asked by the government. So are you still suggesting that the government coordinate this and somehow they hire private businesses or are you just going to let the free market do it organically through a free market system without government direction i think she mentioned my name i think i should be able to respond to that Ken. i think it's a pointed yeah, question so okay. typically we make use a rebuttal card but you had usually we make use a rebuttal card but you had 22 seconds left on the previous question so i'll let you have the 22 seconds or if you want to use a rebuttal the answer is both. You know, I believe in Doctors Without Borders, which is a wonderful organization, private organization, but a lot of people fall through the cracks as well. So if the government is there contracting with things like the Red Cross and with Oxfam and other places like this, it works. So both. That was, that was 25 seconds too, by the way. <laughs> it's all right. We're, we're okay. So... All right, so we're now to the section where we're going to get into closing statements. I get, I get a question, don't I? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I got confused. Yes, I am so sorry, Mr. Mons. Good Lord. It, can you tell I'm not a professional debate moderator? I usually in the in the background like Mr. Spangle running the ops, not uh, moderating, so I apologize. Uh, yes, You're Mr. playing one very well on TV. <laughs> well, okay, uh, my, my question is for, for Judge Gray. I've made it clear that I want to bring all the troops and the drones home, period, in all the foreign engagement wars. You've said, you've mentioned something about auditing uh, the different countries where we have troops. So my question for you is, you know, what's your criteria for these audits you're talking about, where troops are and the criteria for bringing them home? And with that audit being done, do you think, well, what countries are you willing to leave troops in? Okay. Well, thank you, John. I'm talking about reality. I'm talking about contracts. I'm talking about treaties. And I'm talking about our national interests. So we will audit those. We will look at each place. Right now, according to Ron Paul, we have something in the order of 400 military reservations around the world. With that audit, focusing on them, if they are necessary for our national security, then let's reinforce them, reinforce them for all that matter. I don't think we'll find very many. Maybe some in order to keep freedom of the seas, which I favor. I think that's part of our national interest. But if we have a contract with people or it's an agreement, you know, we're not going to break the agreement. We've agreed with a particular country that we're going to stay there as a lessee, in effect, for two years. We're not going to break the lease or we will renegotiate it. That's what I'm talking about with regard to audits. I think that audit will be able to bring home 300, close 300 of those troops, those, those military reservations, basically with very little thought that, and then we can start keeping looking at the rest of them. But the idea that we're going to bring our troops home right away is not a good thing for the security of the United States. We will be betraying our allies. We have some obligations there, treaties. We believe as libertarians in keeping our contracts. 
Now, I think clearly that we have too many troops in South Korea. I need to look at their treaty organizations and see. I would try to bring home all the troops from South Korea, all the troops from Germany, from Japan. Yes, but I'm not going to just commit to it blindly without really looking, talking to the military. I'm not an expert in military affairs and talking with the State Department because I'm not an expert there. So this whole idea sounds good. Oh, let's just do no, it's unrealistic. And I'm not going to bring home the, the Marines either from our embassies. I mean, these are things, they're niceties, but they're reality. I'm reality driven. All right. Now we're actually at the part where we're at closing statements. Sorry about that. Um, and the uh, before I do that, I want to once again thank Chris Bangle and We Are Libertarians and thank the New Jersey Libertarian Party for teaming up with here. Uh, us here at the Libertarian Party of Kentucky to present this. Um, I would like to say that I'm intentionally not doing so well to make you all look even better. Uh, that would be a lie, but that's also why I'm not running for president. So um, we have closing statements here. Let me make sure I know the rules on these closing statements. The closing statements are supposed to be five minutes each, but according to my tally, you all each also have two additional minutes left. So you can take up to seven I minutes. I won't use it. <laughs> you, can, you can take up to seven minutes for a close. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, other than the, uh, the official debate that's happening tomorrow night, uh, Thursday night. Yeah, Thursday night. Um, this is kind of perhaps uh, some viewers last shot at seeing you before the nomination. So uh, I, think I want to thank the audience for being here. And I hope that they've learned something and enjoyed it. And uh, let's go to closing statements, and we will start with Dr. Joe Jorgensen. So I would also like to thank the debate organizers, the viewers, and the candidates. So thank you, Chris Bangle. Thank you, Ken. Uh, thank you, Kentucky, for this very important debate. The vote is coming up soon. So debates like this are really important because this is an important decision that delegates have to make. The presidential nominee is going to be one of the most seen person out there. Uh, we need somebody who can put forth the ideas. And so it's important that you see all of us in action. And by the way, if you go to my website, I had a recent uh, radio show with uh, Austin Peterson, and you can hear me when I talk on a radio show with non-delegates. So, so tonight, we hear people, not just tonight, but in other debates, people throw around the terms like unifying the party and appealing to the different factions of the party, but they don't always have the evidence to show that, and I do. Again, I'd like to mention, I am so honored and so proud that the Pragmatic Caucus endorsed me. Also, I'd like to point out that the Radical Caucus gave me a rating of a B. And out of those of us on stage tonight, nobody has a higher rating. So what I've been saying from the start, what I've been saying since November is, yes, it is possible to be pragmatic, to be practical, to offer solutions to Americans while sticking to the platform. I absolutely agree with Jim Gray that when you go for all or nothing, you usually get nothing. However, 
what I'm doing is I'm not going for the all as in, I'm going to take the rug out from grandma who's not going to be able to uh, get medical care or feed herself. What I'm doing is I'm showing practically how we can go through a progression and get rid of these functions of government that government should have never had to begin with. So in order to unify the party, we need somebody who has both of these approaches principled and practical. So I had the experience. I was the VP candidate in 1996. Again, I've had experience growing the party. I was U.S. Congress uh, US Congress uh, candidate in 1992. And I'd like to mention that the local newspaper uh, referred to me as a rose between two thorns because I had the Democrat on one side, the Republican on the other, and they were trading barbs. And they said I was the one coming up with the reasonable approaches. And I'd like to point out how Greenville is like the perfect size city to get the kind of attention that we need when we go out there and campaign. I'm com I've committed See, I'm committed to using my campaign to grow the party, to help down ticket candidates. And I've already mentioned sharing data. Let me mention what else we plan to do. Research is very important. Whenever I go into an interview, I need to know what the current events are. I need to know how the libertarian philosophy can, um, can apply to that. For instance, I think I showed a good example today when I talked about the no-knock policy. I can talk about the police and so forth, but instead, let's get to the root cause. What's the libertarian solution? The libertarian solution can't just be police training. It has to be, let's get rid of the drug laws. So in order to go out there and talk to CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. I need to be up on my game. So we have somebody in the campaign who is already committed to being a researcher for current events. So I will have my talking points and my research for the day. We are committed. Anybody who wants this research, anybody, especially running for U.S. Congress and U.S. House, who would have the same topics, they can contact my campaign and they will receive the same research and same talking points I have so that they can can uh, go out there being better informed. And running a, uh, running a campaign, uh, it takes a lot of time. And many candidates do not have the research staff. So basically, we can pool our resources and I can help share my staff. So without sacrificing our platform, I can show Americans that without an income tax, each American family would save, on average, somewhere between twelve dollars and $14,000. They could buy a new car every couple of years, maybe go on that vacation that they haven't been able to go on. I already mentioned the advantages of getting rid of the drug war and instead having a drug peace. But I didn't go through all of them, and I didn't go through an ex explanation that I would um, – talk to the American people about something that people are concerned about is they say, well, but if we legalize drugs, won't everybody just be using drugs? One thing that I would point out is that alcohol consumption increased just a little after prohibition ended. But here's the important thing. It didn't go up by much and alcoholism and social problems did not increase. The problems are with the laws, not the substance. With immigration, I would point out that the U.S. had virtually open borders until the 1920s and that allowing productive immigrants into the United States means we build a stronger economy. More Amer or Most Americans have been enriched by immigrants and just having the joy of learning about new cultures. Healthcare is important.
important. Right now, it's a special interest-driven um, uh, field run very poorly, mostly by the government, since over half of our tax dollars go through the government. As president, I would work to remove all of the interference. And again, if I were on Dr. Oz, I would ask mothers, wouldn't it be great? Seven, eight, nine o'clock, even 11 o'clock at night, your kid has an earache. Wouldn't it be great to have a clinic open instead of having to go to the inefficient emergency room, having to wait three hours with other people who are having heart attacks and other problems? We've got so much regulation that we don't have competition out there. You would get lower costs with much higher quality and bringing the troops home. We would foster peace stop human casualties, and end the pretext for massive government overspending and high taxes. As I mentioned, we could take a huge chunk out of the military and still have the largest military in the world. Please come to my website, joj2020.com, join my campaign, help me win the nomination, and I will spread the word of liberty. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jorgensen. Uh, the producer uh, is so kind to remind me that there is a uh, poll for tonight's debate as well that I forgot to mention that it opens up, should be open up now, actually, uh, if not, give it just a few minutes. Oh, since, uh, I have 11 L- seconds, since I have 11 seconds left, can I encourage people to vote for me? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> thank you. And uh, lpky.org slash finale. Uh, this is the last of the LPKY presidential debates. Um, so lpky.org slash finale. It's there up on the screen. Thank you, producer Spangle for, uh, correcting my errors. All right. Um, let's see here. Next up is Mr. John Mons. You are up for up to seven minutes, sir. Uh, make your closing pitch. First of all, thank you, LP Kentucky. Thank you, Ken, Chris, uh, for putting this together and, and working us through it. It's, it's an honor being a candidate for the nomination of, of president of the United States for the Libertarian Party. You know, I've put blood, sweat, and tears, time in my life into trying to help build a party. And I've enjoyed every single minute of it. I've had a blast. Uh, I've met some of the best people in the world. And what I just want to say to you is this, what you see is what you get. You know, for those of seeing me in person and, and hopefully it transmits in some of these debate, you know, I'm I'm very sincere and down to earth. I don't even like bragging about uh, some of the accomplishments I've had with the LP. But if it inspires somebody to get involved, maybe run for for office that hadn't run in the past, I, I think that's important. Once again, I want to say that, you know, my inspiration for joining the race was my great, great grandparents, slaves in Georgia. My family's been in Georgia for over 160 years. And it's in their honor that I'm out here fighting as hard as I can to bring the message of freedom, not just to one segment of the population, but to everybody. My plan, as I introduced earlier, state by state, it's not top down. It's not what I can do as, as the nominee and, and, and say what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, Kentucky, what do you need? Ohio, Washington, Arizona. Let me know where I can be of best service. How can I help with your ballot access? Because I know from working 
with an ex excom in a state party that those on the local level know what they need versus me trying to tell you what you need. We can win on issues. You need a fighter. I'm a fighter. I've been fighting all my adult life. I've been fighting against government. I've been teaching my kids to fight against government. So you need somebody that's, that's not afraid to say what needs to be said. You know, we're not going libertarian light because it might scare some people because freedom is a radical idea, but we need to share it. So that's the type of candidate I am. You need to talk, you know, ask yourself, you know, who is the best candidate that you think will get the best result? I call it the X factor. There's a lot of things that cause people to go out and vote that might not have anything to do with the statement they made on issues or, you know, where they're from and what party they uh, belong to. And that's some of the success that the other major parties have had. You know, my approach is being strong on message. That's why I say we're bringing all the troops home, all the drones home. We need to be strong on message. We're ending the income tax. Let them fight over. We shouldn't do that. So if that's the type of candidate that you want, it's an easy choice. I think, you know, and that would be John Mons. I'm looking for your support. You know, if you haven't done your tokens yet for the national debate, I'm asking that you get them in. You know, if this message resounds with you, I'm asking that you contact the campaign. Mons2020.com is where you can go. And I'm also asking for your vote one Saturday. You know, I'd like to be your first choice. I'd like to send a strong message on the first ballot. If I can't get the 50% plus one, I'd like to be, and if I'm not your first choice, let me be your second, because I do have broad appeal throughout the party, and I think that will translate to the nation. Now is our time. People like to think about and revise history, that if I was in 1776, living back then, I would have been right there with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. You know, if I was living during slavery, I would have been an abolitionist or I would have been a runaway. But we can't look back to those situations and say what we think we would have done. We need to concentrate on what we're doing today right now. We need to be just as forceful because what the government has done with this pandemic, thinking that they control and have nationalized every business in this country and every life as well, believing that they can control us all is nothing short of tyranny. And we need somebody who's gonna say that. I'd love to see Biden and, and Trump argue against me that we're not living in tyrannical times and they're trying to take us back to a place that we don't wanna go. There's an old freedom song from the civil rights movement that even goes back to post-Civil uh, War. Before I'll, it's, and it's, here's some of the lyrics, before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That's the type of attitude we need right now. We need it from everybody across the party. When this nomination is over, be ready to go to work because that's when the real work uh, starts. We have great candidates and we get along well, but I think tonight you may have seen some of the differences and hopefully that'll help you make a decision, a powerful one that sends a message that 
man, we, we're fighting all the way to the end. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And good night. All right. Thank you, Mr. Mons. And uh, be before you go, uh, Judge Greg, give me just one moment uh, to remind folks, uh, if you've enjoyed what you've liked, if you've liked what you've seen here tonight, uh, please consider donating. Uh, one of the places you may want to donate is uh, wearelibertarians.com. Uh, Chris Spangle has done a great job producing this debate tonight. I thank him very, very much. I could not have pulled this off without him tonight. Um, I barely got through just being a moderator, much less the tech. So uh, wearelibertarians.com. You can subscribe on your, on your podcast app or subscribe here on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube. And uh, thank you again, Chris, and We Are Libertarians for the forum. Uh, New Jersey Libertarian Party, njlp.org. Libertarian Party of Kentucky, lpky.org. Uh, and, of course, don't forget to vote. That The polls are open now. And if you have a token for national and you haven't cashed it in yet, you got till tomorrow, you know, Think about it and do it because it's time. So uh, with that, uh, Judge Jim Gray, take us home. <laughs> Indeed. Well, certainly I thank you, Ken. Thank you, Chris, LP Kentucky. And thanks, John and Joe. I'm proud to be with you. I make a promise, and that is I'm not going to take the full seven minutes. That ought to get me a few votes just in itself. But also, with regard to donations, I am a life member of the Libertarian Party. I donate, and, and that's a wonderful thing to do. Money really helps the Libertarian Party. But I, I end as I began. This is a matter of leadership. This is a matter of background. This is a matter of being able to carry this message, to tell people, show people, be with people, and show that felt need so that it comes from within. How do you do that? Well, it's not just with talks. It's with plans. It's with background. We have planned to win the election. We've heard about that. We have a plan to, to do various things. And by the way, with regard to the drug war, and nobody has more credentials than I've been fighting this fight since 1992. As a result of that, I'm media savvy. I've been on the O'Reilly factor twice, for example. Uh, he didn't like what I was saying, but he invited me back. Uh, I've been on ABC News specials. I've been in hundreds of local as well as national shows, radio, television, otherwise. I actually, my, my running mate, Larry Sharp, has been on Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, that's called good stuff. And in fact, he was welcomed back to Joe Rogan. So we have this touch. We have this ability. So I was invited today, actually, to be on CBS radio. So it's there. We go back to our country, to what we are, to the monetary system. When I was in college, I could buy four gallons of gas for a dollar. In fact, I remember if it was above 25 cents, I wouldn't buy it. I'd just buy one gallon and wait for it to come down. Today, we still can buy four gallons of gasoline for a dollar, but it has to be a silver dollar. Inflation is harming us, our country, our national standing, and our children and grandchildren. Talking about grandchildren, I was just recently, I'm proud to say, made a grandfather, April the 22nd, and we had little Hudson, and then five days later, I was holding my little grandson, and I looked down at this miracle of birth, thought, oh my goodness sakes, my heart started beating faster. And then I looked peculiarly and said, okay, Hudson, you're $76,000 in debt, pay up. I mean, this is what we, the legacy we're leaving for our children and grandchildren. Only libertarians are able to speak for those people. They are our constituents. They will have that felt need. We will keep going. Okay, yes, maybe I've said a few things that people don't agree with. I'll stand up because this is my belief. 
Larry Sharp's 80-20, 80% with you, you're an ally. Well, I'm sure that I'm above 80%, 90%, 92%. I don't know. I'll leave it to you, the delegates. But I'm here. I will be here forever as a libertarian. I've been there in the past. So we can decide. Do we want to have a candidate who has a plan? Actually, there are only two candidates in this nomination race that have plans. One is Adam Kokesh. His plan is to basically shut down the federal government. Okay, say what you will, but it is a plan. And the other is Judge Jim Gray. You've heard them already. We're talking about getting, paring down enormously the welfare system, the intrusion of the IRS and its bureaucracy. That's a plan. Sunset provisions with regard to regulations and shining a light on the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Land Management. Are you aware that the Bureau of Land Management runs something on the order of more than 80% or the federal government owns about more than 80% of the entire state of Nevada and many of the states west of the Mississippi. I say, turn back all of the land in the, that the BLM is running, not the national parks, not the military reservations, or even national forests, but turn that back to the states. That's where it should be. So we stand for these sorts of things. It is not a debate society. This is a political party. We need to reason with the voters. We need to show plans and ways to the voters. And then we are not a debate society. So yes, John Mons, he's a good man. You haven't heard any specific plan other than he's going to lead and he'll have credibility. Okay, that's fine. Really good for debates and rhetoric. And basically, it's the same thing with Joe Jorgensen, a wonderful lady. You haven't heard anything about how she's going to purchase those fighter airplanes, for example. Fighter pilots are expensive. So is the judiciary. I don't want foundations, private individuals paying for the judiciary because then you get all the justice you pay for. It's going to have to be funded. And unfortunately, it's going to be an income tax, at least for the next few years, until they see this plan change a crutch into a ladder to, be, to see how we can make progress. Then we go the final step and get rid of the income tax. So look, we, we are the unifying candidates, Larry Sharp, Judge Jim Gray. We can unify the political party of the of Libertarian Party. We can unify our country who is craving who we are and what we would do, that third voice. We will stand up to the Bidens and Trumps of this world. So the choice is yours. It's been pretty well laid out for you. You know, it's either all or nothing or just rhetoric or someone with a plan. Somebody has that background and background, leadership, plans, and dedication to the Libertarian Party. I ask you for your support. I ask for your tokens. I ask for your votes on Saturday and thereafter through all the ballots. RaySharp2020.com. By the way, this is not the only one last time to talk to you. AMA in uh, Region 2, and it starts in about 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Go to RaySharp2020.com, click on the Facebook page, and watch us some more. AMAs are wonderful. Ask me anything. Biden and Trump aren't going to do it. Judge Jim Gray and other libertarian candidates do. So thank you. I promise you again, support us, join us, help us move mountains. And even if you do or if you do not, Larry Sharp, Judge Jim Gray, we will do you proud. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks again. And good luck to us all. All right. Well, thank you all for being here tonight. Thanks to the audience for watching. Uh, I did get some more questions. Unfortunately, you know, by the time we got them, there wasn't really any time to uh, sneak them in. And I apologize to our audience for that. Um, you know, there will be one more debate. If you are a delegate to the national convention, uh, part of the token process is what question would you like to ask the candidates? So if you have a burning question and you are a delegate and have not yet turned in your token, turn in your token and ask a question. 
and uh, it will be uh, the moderator of that debate that will choose. Uh, if you would like to vote in our poll with the Libertarian Party of Kentucky, go to lpky.org forward slash finale. And uh, that is because this is the finale of our debates uh, from the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. Again, thank you for the uh, from thank you for your support, Libertarian Party of New Jersey. Thank you very much, Chris Spangle, and we are Libertarians for the, the time and the technical assistance on this. Thank you all for watching. Thank you for participating, candidates. And uh, I raise a glass of bourbon to you all because I live in Kentucky. <laughs> thank you, and have a good night. You too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good night, and thank you as well.